We have been uh, in the middle of a series, this is our fourth week, and we've been talking about uh, the upside-down kingdom. And when we look at Scripture, it's very clear that there are two kingdoms. There is a kingdom of the air, or the darkness, which is ruled by the, the enemy, whose main purpose is to steal, to kill, and destroy. And we saw that very clearly in week one. And then there's a kingdom of heaven. And these are the teachings that Jesus is telling us throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He's, he's telling us this is the way to live. These are the marks of a believer, of what it means to live out the values and the principles of this Christian lifestyle. And so we, we've talked about things from money. We've talked about um, in-depth these kingdoms. And, and one of the things that we pull away is that you and I are image bearers of the king. We were created in his image to reflect him in everything that we do. But we find ourselves living in a culture that is completely different from the culture that was created. From, from Genesis chapter 1, all things were created. And every time God made something new in the beginning, he said it was good. And the first time that he says in the scripture that something wasn't good is in Genesis uh, chapter 2. When, when Eve is not in the picture yet, and it's just Adam, he said it is not good that man is alone. And so Eve is created. Get to Genesis chapter 3. God had given them one specific rule. Do not eat of this tree. If you eat of everything else, you can have everything else. If you do everything else that I've asked, life will be grand. It will be wonderful. But I do not want you eating this. And the serpent, the enemy, slithers himself down the tree. And he begins having a conversation with Eve. And that didn't catch her off guard. But if a snake were talking to me, that would catch me off guard. And he begins to question her. Did God really say that? God's just withholding from you. God doesn't want you to, to know what the blessing is on the other side of doing this. This is why he doesn't want you to eat. And what God was doing was not trying to rob and keep them from something good. He was trying to protect them. I mean, we tell our kids not to touch the hot pan on the stove, not because we don't want them to experience the fun of what it is to touch the hot pan on the stove. We don't want them to understand the pain that is associated with touching the pan. Well, Eve reaches and touches the pan. Not only did it affect her, Adam decides that he's going to take a bite. He takes a bite. And ladies and gentlemen, that's why we're here talking about this very thing called sin thousands of years later. Because it has penetrated our world to where God's kingdom was quickly changed. And this new kingdom of darkness is ushered in. Now, we have been called to be children of the light. We have been called to be examples of cities shining on a hill in a dark and corrupt world. So to do that, we have to live out the principles that Jesus has commanded us to live. And so one of those things that we're going to talk about today is in the kingdom of God, there's a kingdom of God in work. There's a work that has to be done. And our culture wants to define us by what we do. You think about it, you meet someone new, the first question typically is, I say, my name is so-and-so, what's yours? And then typically the next question or somewhere in the line of questions is, so what do you do for a living, right? And then that becomes kind of the, the icebreaker to all conversations. And sometimes our identities can be wrapped up in what it is that we do. Our identity seems to be tied into that. And we just get caught up in the normal. I'm a teacher. I'm a police officer. I'm a firefighter. I'm an electrician. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm a whatever it is that you want to be. But our identity is not in the normality of what it is that we do. Our, our identity is found and centered in who Jesus is. 
right? So our, our routine is we get up, we eat, we sleep, we repeat the cycle. And there's some chaos that happens in the middle of that hustle and bustle. And if, we're, if, if our biggest prayer at the end of the week is thank God it's Friday, if that's our biggest prayer, we have missed living as we have been called to live in an upside-down kingdom. So, so I ask these questions. What in the world are we living for? What are we living for? What are we doing with our one and only life that we've been given? What is our life's purpose? That's an important question. I hit 40 last Saturday. I know. I look 21. I get it. Thank you. Okay, just making sure. Pastor dies of lightning bolt for lying about his age on stage. Attendance is up next weekend. Um, you know, when, when, you, when birthdays come and you get a little older, you stop and tend to reflect about where it is that you are. What, what have I accomplished up to this point? What has been done up to this point? And, and as we get older, we, we tend to do a lot more reflecting and, and asking those questions. And so maybe, maybe even at a younger age, I know in high school we asked, what am I supposed to be doing? But really is what is our purpose? What are we living for? We get one life, right? You only get one shot, is what Eminem said. So don't miss your chance. He also talked about his mom's spaghetti in that song somewhere. We get one shot at this. So what is our purpose? What are we, what are we doing? You know, I was reading last week in the book of Acts. We're going to be jumping into a series here soon. But Acts chapter 11 in verse 26, excuse me, Acts chapter 11, verse 24, is kind of what I've decided at this point moving forward is my mantra for my life, and maybe it is for you too. But this is what I want to live for in Acts chapter 11. It says, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Isn't that a good thing just to strive for? Like, used to, it was just that I'd get to heaven and God would go, hey man, good try. Good try. <laughs> you almost made it. But I, I want to spend the next years of my life really living out the purpose of being full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, and a great many people be added to the Lord. And so today I pray that that will be your prayer. I pray that will be your life's mantra. I pray that you will seek God and ask him what it is that he wants to do to use you to turn the world upside down. I'm praying that you will hear the calling that God has on your life. And you may not know this, but God has a specific calling on your life. There is no sacred secular divide when it comes to jobs. And people tend to think, well, you're a pastor, so it's a much more holier position. And it's not the case. Just because I teach the Bible every single day doesn't mean that I, my job is more holier than yours and yours is not because it's secular. I'll just tell you that if you will see where you work and what you do as a platform to preach the gospel from, you have much bigger influence than I will ever have because I'm around a bunch of Christians all the time, right? I have to get out and go places. And when you go places that sinners are, um, people tend to judge the pastor for going to those places. I don't, that's a whole other sermon. 
But what God has called all of us to do is to be co-creators with him. Everything we do is holy work. So I want you to look at your job like this. You are a missionary that has been gifted to do that particular job for this time and this season. Make the most of it. That doesn't mean that you walk in tomorrow and you pull up a table and you stand on top of it with a Bible and start giving a devotion. Right? That'll get you fired, I'm sure. But what it means is, I'm going to live out the values and the principles of Jesus in this office, in this place, and I'm going to point people towards him. So God has called every one of us to be co-creators with him. It's all holy work. Now, this is what we've been called to do until the day of his return. Okay? So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 25 this morning, but before we can get to Matthew 25, we've we got to have a little bit of context because if we just jumped into it, it would be really confusing. So in Matthew chapter 24, the disciples are with Jesus, and they come up to the temple. The temple is one of the most holiest places of, of Israel, of, of all the Jews. They would come here every single year to do Passover. They would have their sacrifices here. They would give of their offering here. This was all of life revolved around the temple. It was a very sacred place. And one day they're, they're walking by it, and Jesus says, this is going to be a pile of rocks one day. This is all going to crumble. Now let me tell you something. To say such a thing in earshot of anybody that was strictly Jewish, Pharisee, Sadducee, to hear that would have been a threat upon the Jewish community. That this man's walking around saying that he's going to destroy the temple and it's going to be a pile of rocks. So Jesus tells them, this is all going to go away. The sacrificial system of you having to bring lambs here and other animals to sacrifice for your sin, that day is going away. You're not going to have to do that anymore because the system is not going to be at work anymore because there's going to, I'm going to pay the price. And they haven't realized yet that Jesus is going to be the atonement for the sins of the people. That he's saying that I'm going to wash every sin away. So the disciples asked this question in Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and he was going away when the disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Oh, look at all these places, Jesus. What about these porticos? And what about that? But he answered to them, you see all of these? Do you not see all of these? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that, that will not be thrown down. By the way, have you guys seen the temple in Israel? Oh, Jesus must have been right about that. Because today there sits the Dome of the Rock on the place that the temple was, and the Muslims control what used to be the place of the temple. By the way, they were, the Muslims do believe in Jesus. They were so scared because the tradition is that Jesus will come through the Eastern Gate that they have literally cemented 12-foot thick cement just in case Jesus comes back, he can't enter, because Jesus can't do it. He can't enter through 12 feet, because he didn't resurrect himself, you know. So, but anyway, funny, fun story. He says, so, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, because this thing really rocked them a little bit, right? This is a sacred place, and you're talking about tearing it down. I don't understand what you're saying. So they came to him privately and said, tell us, when, when, when will we see these things? When, when are these things going to happen? Now, Peter, by the way, when he heard that the temple was going to be destroyed... He was like, this is awesome. When's this going down? Because I've, I've been working on my knife skills and sword skills. and So P Peter's ready, and he says this. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of this age? T tell us, what, when is this going to happen? So what they want to know is, 
This is all about the end times and what they want to know. All through Matthew chapter 24, he talks to them on this topic of the end times. And in Matthew, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is going to tell three stories back to back to back to answer this one question that they're asking. Because really what it is is, when are you coming back? It's more like, what do we need to do in the meantime? Right? We don't like the meantime. We, we like to start and defend. We don't like the things that happen in the meantime. So, so he says this, how are we to be prepared for your return? So in Matthew 25, there's these three parables. In parable one, it's the parable of the ten virgins. And basically the whole sum of that story is this. Don't miss the party. Because Jesus is going to come back, and we've got to be ready when he, on his return. So surrender to Jesus. Then the third parable that he teaches is the parable of sheep and goats. And it shows what a gospel-infective life is supposed to look like. When we, when we are covered in the gospel and live out gospel values, this is what... It would look like but right in the middle of, of parable one and parable three Jesus shares a parable of talents and what this whole thing is about is this it's gonna come down to this don't waste your life like you're sitting here asking these questions of when's the temple gonna go and when the end times gonna go and Jesus is saying don't worry about that because it's gonna happen you know, a lot of people get so called up teaching about the second coming when many people have never heard about the first coming of Jesus. And he said, don't, don't, miss, don't miss this. You've got one life. Don't sit here on this one life waiting on things to happen. So we get into Matthew chapter 25 and verse 15. He said, for it, now the it that he's talking about here, that is the question of what do we need to do to be prepared? When is all this going to happen? He says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them. Please tell me what that next word. He entrusted them his. You may think what you have is yours, but it's not. It's his. The relational conflict with the people that we have relational conflict with, they are his. The car you drive is his. The children you are raising are his. Your spouse his. It is all his. Let that sink in for just a minute. It says that he entrusted to them his property. And then in verse 15 he says this, to the one he gave five talents. Now the talent, a measure of, this is a measure of money. It's a 20 years rate wage, almost about two million dollars. All right, anybody want to get in on this story? He says he gave one five talents, to another he gave two, to another, he gave one, each according to his ability, and then he went away. Now, some people say this ain't fair. He gave one five, one two, one one. So that's not fair. Can I just tell you, Jesus is a king, not a socialist. Okay? He, he's going to give what he wants to give because whose property is it? His property. So it says this. And 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he, he made five more talents. He doubled, he doubled it. He increased the gifting that he had. But I want you to catch this word. He was given five talents, and at once he went and traded and made five more talents. He was obedient. And delayed obedience is disobedience. 
Because all he had to do was take these five and say, oh, oh man, look at this. I, I got it. I'm good. This is all I need. I'm going to sit on this. I'm not going to do anything. But was he asked to keep what he had to himself? See, the obedience that Jesus says is that go. Don't sit around and wait. Just go. And a lot of times that we sit around praying on stuff that God's already given us answers on, and we use that as an excuse, and we're just delaying the obedience. But delayed obedience is disobedience. So my question is, what's the one thing that God's called you to do that you keep praying about? That he's already clearly said. And I don't think that God is just after this normal obedience. God is after a new kind of obedience. It's an obedience that is born out of our desires. That when our desire is for him, because we realize that he is everything in all things, then that desire should push us to want to be obedient. And there's a difference between wanting to be obedient and having to be obedient. I remember growing up in church and talking to my, I always wanted to sit with my buddy in church. And I know I wasn't supposed to talk, but I wanted to talk. And so we talked, right? I wasn't, it wasn't my desire to not talk. My desire was to. So me, so the way I looked at it was me getting in trouble in church at a young age was born out of my desire. Because I wanted to do the opposite of what I was supposed to. And Jesus says, listen, this is a whole new obedience. I want an obedience that will grow out of your desires, where you obey God because you desire God. And there's a difference in that. Having to do something, you know on your list of things that you do every day, there are things that you have to do, but you know good and well if somebody else can do it, you'd love to give it to somebody else to do. And there's a difference between the things that you have to and the things that you get to do. Having to do is a burden mindset. Jesus says, I didn't come to give you burdens. My burden's light. And so this is, a, this is an obedience that produces out of our desires. It's, it's an act of the Holy Spirit. So just do whatever he tells you to, whenever he tells you to do it. And if you don't know what you're going to do, and you don't know what that specific calling is. He's given us all a general calling, and that general calling is to go and make disciples of him. Just go tell people what you know. Well, I'll mess that up. Just go tell people what you know. The Holy Spirit's stronger than we are. He'll fix it. He says this in verse 17. He says, so also, we had he who had two talents made two talents more. And these first two guys have done a good job, didn't they? But I want you to notice something about this second guy. He did not compare what his talents were to the first guy. We, we, we live in this, this culture where we worry about comparing everything that we have. And we get caught up in the comparison game. And then we feel like we've got to have more, do more, because this person has this. Don't compare. Guy number one has five talents. He takes his five talents. He trades. He gets five more. But the guy that had two didn't have as much. But he still takes what it is that he does have, and he makes good with them. The guy spent zero time comparing what he had with other people. He just does what God tells him to. See, I think we get in trouble when we try to fulfill somebody else's dream. Because we want to be like other people. We want to be like them, but we never really know the cost of what it took for them to get where they are. And so a lot of times we try to compare our lives with what has been filtered on social media or, or, and this is what we want. This is what their life looks like. You guys know good and well. Y'all have all done family pictures. And if we could sit down and talk about the story behind the beautiful edited photo of your family picture, we'd be like, oh my gosh, man, I'm glad I don't have your kids. Am I right? Who's had a really bad experience 
to get to that one good picture and family picture. Anybody? Okay, we got a couple of people that are telling the truth. The other ones either haven't had a family picture or you're lying, and it's okay. But we always live in this thing of like trying to compare ourselves to somebody else. And comparison is a lose-lose situation. Because when we try to compare to what somebody else has, and why can't I have this, why can't I be like that, we miss out on what God has given us and the resources that he has given us. Because the last time I checked, Jesus did a whole lot of stuff with very little. You remember those five loaves, or five, fit, two fit, five loaves, five food? You remember the food? <laughs> remember the Captain D's thing? He had some fish and some bread. And he, he, he made a multitude of it. Because here's the thing, a little in Jesus' hand is a lot. Whether it's your five talent, two talent, zero talent. I mean, I, I was reading the Old Testament one time. There's a story of a guy named Balaam. And Balaam wouldn't listen, so God used a donkey to speak to him. I read that and knew I was called to be a pastor right there. That was, that was me. If God can use a donkey, he can use me. So we compare our unfiltered lives to everybody else's filtered lives. Listen, in this, in this in-between, Jesus is saying we're on mission. Don't be comparing what you don't have with other people and what they have. Focus on what it is that you do have, and let's figure out how we can use it. There's a new kind of death in our country. I don't know if you saw it, but it's called death by selfie. And if you look up the statistics, it's weird. But 90 people a year die from taking selfies of themselves. And you tell me that maybe Freud was right in some things, right? Maybe this thing was right. But you've you got people who, 90 people a year to get the right shot of themselves. Oh, look at this picture of me up against this lion, you know, and then... It didn't work out for you like it did with Daniel. And, and you die to get the right shot, to get the right people to like it. To, to, you, you see what I'm saying? How crazy that is? How many of you try to take a picture of yourself or a video and you walked into something? Right? Okay. Death by selfie. Don't compare yourself with other people. Look at what God has given you. So he says in verse 18, but he who had received the one talent, he went and dug in the ground and he hid his master's money. And, not, and now after a long time, remember, he's answering the question of what are we supposed to be doing in the meantime? When's all this stuff going to end? He says, the master of those servants came and they settled their accounts with him. They came back. Where's the, where's the talents? Where did he put his talent? It's hidden in the ground. And every single one of us will one day stand and have to give an account for our lives. And there's two ways that this goes. The one way is you can just plead self-atonement that I've got this, I can do it on my own, my sins are forgiven because of what I've done. So that's one way to handle and settle your account with God. But here's what's going to happen. You're going to get a bill because you're not going to be able to pay for that. Because there's nothing that you can do to, for salvation. Now the second way is you can take the, substitu the substitute, the atonement of Jesus and his blood, and have your sins paid for. And we settle up knowing that my sins have been forgiven because of what Jesus has done. And when we stand before Jesus, we're going to plead the blood of Jesus on our behalf. And we're not going to say that the Holy Spirit is going to speak on our behalf. He does that for us. He is our advocate. So Jesus has paid a price for us. And then he, he says that, 
There's going to be a day that we're going to have to settle the accounts that we have in verse 20. He says, and, and he who received the five talents, he came forward, bringing five talents more. I can just imagine this guy, like, his hands are full. He's excited because of all that he's done with what he was given. And he brings these five talents. Because he's excited. He hears the master's back in town. I'm going to get a sticker for this. Here you go. And he hands it over. And he says, Master, you delivered to me five talents, and I have made five talents more. He's, notice he starts with gratitude here because he says, you have given me. You've entrusted me with this, and this is what I've done with it. Take, take this back as my offering. Verse 21, it says that his master said to him, well, you ready? Done. My good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. See, obedience always comes with joy. It always comes with joy from the master of the father just saying, God, good job. Like, you got it. You figured it out. So we serve a God who gets things done. He gets things done. It might not be on our timing, but he gets things done. And I'm so glad when Jesus was on the cross, he didn't go, man, I hope this works. Because what was his final words on the cross? It was to telestai. It is finished. That there's nothing that they can do to, for, for their sins to be forgiven. It was me paying this price for them that now their sins have been forgiven. And so he says that he's a God that gets things done. And that's what he wants us to do. Now, the brother of Jesus, James, says this in his book. He says, be doers. Because we're not called just to sit. Because in this, in this meantime of waiting on Jesus to come, we're not sitting here fiddling our thumbs and staring at the sky. We're, we're waiting on him, but we've been tasked with this mission. And he says, be doers of the word. Not just hearers. Don't just deceive yourself. He says, if you just hear and don't do it, you just deceive yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once he forgets what it was that he looked like. But the one who looks in the perfect law, the law of liberty, and preserves, being no hearer and who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in doing. So when you woke up this morning, the first thing you did is looked at yourself in the mirror, and you took an assessment. All right, I'm going to have to do something with this hair, right? If it's just throw water on it, whatever it is. I'm going to have to do something about this breath that's kicking back off the mirror in my face. I'm going to need to do something with my face. I'm going to need to shave. I'm going to, you did an assessment, didn't you? Now, once you took that assessment, there was some doing that had to happen. All right, I've assessed my hair is a mess. There's a brush. Here's this. I've acknowledged my breath is not great. So here's toothpaste. Here's a toothbrush. Here's mouthwash. Here's dental floss. Here's whatever it is that you use. And you did, you did a self-assessment. Now, you get no credit for the assessment that you made. Am I right? Because if you walked in... To, to work tomorrow morning, you walked into school and you were tore up from the floor up because you just did this assessment, but you didn't do anything with your hair, you did nothing in your breath. People aren't going to go, you know what? I'm glad that you looked at yourself, though. You get all the credit in the world for just looking at yourself. What do you get credit for? Doing it. Man, thanks for brushing your teeth today because we had this face to face conversation. I really appreciate that. Thanks for using deodorant. This is wonderful. You, you get. You get no credit for the assessment, only the doing. And so what, what James is saying is, 
that sometimes we look at the mirror to assess and we hear what we're supposed to do, but we don't do anything. We make an assessment. That's the thing about Christianity. There are a lot of Christians that know exactly what they're supposed to do, but they don't. And they look at the assessment, and they think they're going to get to the end of this, and God's going to say, well, you know what? You, had, you made a good assessment of yourself. You made a good assessment of Christianity. This is fantastic. I know you didn't do anything. God forbid you do anything, or me forbid, I guess, if he's talking to you. But he's like, listen, that's not what you get credit for. You get credit for the doing. So the question is, what has God asked you to do? Not what other people are doing, not what you're trying to compare. What has he asked you specifically to do? Verse 22. And he also, who had two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents here, and I made two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. He gets the same reward for two as the guy with five. You notice that? Same thing. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over a much. See, when God can trust you with a little, he'll give you more. He said, I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. This, this last guy is making excuses and blaming God for why he only has one thing. Now, what did he do with his one talent? He planted it in the ground as if it were a plant. He hid it so that nothing would happen to it, so he could secure the one thing that he had and not share it with everybody else. So he begins making excuses and blaming God. So the danger of being in this in-between with the things God has given you with your work is that you can quickly compare yourself to other people, but you can also don't complain about it. Don't compare and don't complain. The guy's saying, it's not my fault that I only got one. I mean, you only gave me one, so it's not really my fault. There, there's no Christian in the world that should ever say the word, it's not my fault. Now, let me tell you why. Because we follow a Savior that came to this earth and took the blame for a problem that was not his problem. The problem was ours. And he paid a price for us. And so we need to be like Christ, renewing and redeeming that which is broken. And so it's clear here that this guy didn't know the master. So he just takes what he was given and he hides it. And he forgets about it until the day the master comes back and he thinks, oh, here's the one thing that you gave me. I did nothing with it. It's got a little dirt on it, but it's safe. And in, that, in, in 25, it says this, so I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground and here you have what is yours. Now he was scared because when you compare and you complain, don't, don't, don't compare, don't complain, and do not fear. Do not fear. He was full of it. He was full of fear. And you would be too. If you knew you had to go stand before the master with the very thing that he entrusted with you, and all you had was what he had given you, and you'd done nothing with it. You didn't make it grow. I mean, I'd say this too, is that if, if you have doubts, it's okay to pick them up and follow Jesus with doubts. That's okay. Because there's one day that all those doubts are going to go away. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is fear. And fear is when we put our trust in changing circumstances. Faith is when we put our trust in Jesus, who is solid and not moving. And I want to ask you, with the, the things that God has given you, what word describes you? Are you faithful or are you fearful? Because fear is a spirit, not a feeling. 
This is why he says that God did not give us a spirit of fear. We've not been given a spirit of fear. Fear cannot stand in the presence of a perfect love because he says that nothing can stand in the presence of perfect love. Like perfect love drives out fear. So why should I fear? Why should I worry? So are we faithful or are we fearful? Because the master says he's going to hold them accountable. He's going to hold us accountable to what we have. So he finishes this in this and in Verse 26, he says, But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. Bad heart, lazy. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. And then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given, and he will have an abundance but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the one talent guy did not go to hell because he mismanaged the talent. He mismanaged the talent because he didn't know the master. Because had he had known the master, he would have used that resource into the kingdom to invest and to sow into the kingdom. The key is not what you do with your life. It's who has done what Jesus has already done for your life. How are you moving in that? How are you living in that thing? So the question I ask again, what has God called you to do? Because you get one life. How are you leveraging what you have for kingdom? What, what has God given you that you're, you're giving back and multiplying to continue to help people to see him? Don't compare, don't complain, don't cower in fear, but leverage everything that your king has given you for his glory. Whatever you do, do not waste your life. Go back to this question. What are you doing with your life? Go do what he tells you to. What would you do for God's glory if you knew you wouldn't fail? What would you do? If you knew he had called you to something and you wouldn't fail, what would you do? I remember in, towards the end of, um, well, is it the beginning of 2019? We begin to get this calling that God had put for a church to be planted out of a group of families. And we begin having these conversations among each other and praying and didn't make any sense whatsoever nothing made sense because we did everything that you would pay for them to tell you to do we did the exact opposite of what they would tell you to do no billboards no big launches no any n nothing none of that none of that matter of fact i was talking to a lady the other day um at a restaurant i was getting some food and, and she said now where's that church out again i've never heard of you guys before so we got to do a better job like verbally telling people, inviting, but we did everything opposite. And we, we sat in those, these, these meetings in these rooms with each other, just asking God how in the world, but we knew what he had called us to. And we just knew if he called us, to, then there was no failure. We just had to have faith. We had no money. We had no, we didn't have, we didn't have anything. Like we just had a heart and a prayer that Jesus was calling us to do something. 
and then God connects us to this incredible organization that aligned with, with where we wanted to be of really just caring for people, discipling people, ministering to people. We'd never heard of it before. And he says, what's stopping you? And I said, well, we're broke. <laughs> you know, I, I was like, we, we broke, Dan. I, I don't, how we church? We have no money. I said, I only got like six people. So I don't know what this is going to look like. And, and he told me this principle. He said this. There's always money in the fish's mouth. I was like, is this a Chinese proverb? Like, what is, what is this? He said, no, this is biblical. When the disciples couldn't pay their taxes, God told them it was taken care of. Just go down and fish, and they would find the money in the fish's mouth. I said, Robbie, there's always money in the fish's mouth. God's called you to do it. Go do it. I said, man, I don't have a hundred and, what the experts would say, $130,000 to start a church. And I, I've done an assessment of the people that were with us, and I was like, they don't have $130,000. Together, we don't have $130,000. He said, well, it doesn't cost that. It's Launching a church is about $43,000 is what it's going to take. But it doesn't matter because there's always money in the fish's mouth. Did God call you to do it? I said, yeah, he's called us to do this. He said, now pray and ask God to provide. And would you know that over the course of a week, I'm praying, and I'm going to be honest with you. My faith was like, God, please provide this, but I understand if you don't. And if you don't, could you please align me another job or something to do? Because just in case you change your mind and you don't think this is the right thing. And I remember getting out. We, we got a post office box. We finally got enough money to get a post office box. It was a big deal. Because that's when you're official, official, when your church has a post office box. And I would go to that box every day and turn the key and open it. And I would just look in and all I could see was everything behind that box and there was nothing back there but people working and nothing in our box. Every once in a while I'd put a piece of paper in the box just so I felt like I got something in the mail. But a week into praying, my faith started building a little bit more because I kept remembering that God told us to do this and if he called us to do this, then he would provide to do this. And one day I stuck the key in that box and I turned it. And when I opened, there was something in it. And I was like, well, I didn't put paper in there this week. And I pulled it out and there was a check for $45,000 from somebody I did not know. I called Brandon. I remember making a phone call to you going, you will not believe. And he says, no, I would. I do. I believe it. He's, he always robs my faith thunder. And what we needed was there. What would you do if God told you not to fail? That, that he called you to do and you knew that you wouldn't fail. For us, it was plant a church in Monk's Corner. And you're the result of those prayers. That every Sunday, God reaffirms what we've been called to do here. We don't have a building. We don't have matching chairs. We don't even have chairs. We're borrowing. But I believe that God has not ended that calling for us as a church right there. Because we have a job that needs to get done before his return. With a building, without a building, with chairs, without chairs, physically meeting, not physically meeting, it doesn't stop what he's called us to do. Because there's going to be a day that he's going to return and we're going to stand before him and he's going to ask, what did you do with what I had? God, we built this massive building. 
We got incredible lighting. The smoke is amazing. You feel like the spirit's in the room. The music rocks your chest. But God's not going to ask us how many people we had come to our church. What he's going to do is ask us how faithful we were with what he has given us. So the question is, what are you going to do with the one life that you have? And are you going to take the resources that he has given you? Are you going to invest those things? Or are you going to give those back and make a difference into the kingdom? Because that's what he's called us to do. And that's what pays off in the end. So let me pray for you. Father, I pray right now the Holy Spirit would speak to us. That sometimes when it comes to the things that you've given us, we hold tightly to those things when you've asked us to be open-handed. I pray that you would give, give words and give directions to people in this room, even right now as we're talking that, God, maybe the thing that they have a lot of is time, and they want to use that time to leverage it for the kingdom. How can they use that? It's maybe finances. It may be resources that are just sitting in their garage. It may be a spare room. It may be a whole house that they have. What is it that you're calling them to do to make an impact into the kingdom? So, Father, move in this, this moment. Speak to us as we sing and as we worship you. We pray these things in your name.